Good morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning you might take from us all distractions that would prevent us from hearing your word to us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we turn our attention to the scriptures, you might address us. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit you might enable us not only to hear and to understand, but to believe and to do. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, have you, uh, have you ever thought that sometimes, just sometimes, those outside of the kingdom see things more clearly than some inside the kingdom do? That they understand what is involved in being a follower of Jesus just a little bit more sharply than we do? Consider my friend Joe, not, not his real name. He has heard the gospel many times. He knows the facts of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. He knows why Jesus came. He even understands that it is his own sin that made necessary Jesus' death and resurrection. He could tell you that Jesus is the only saviour of the world and that outside of the salvation he brings, all must face judgment. And he believes it. He knows it's true but he will not surrender and put his trust in Jesus. He won't cry out to Jesus to save him and make him one of his people. He sees the truth of all the New Testament teachers, but he will not become a Christian. Why? Because he knows that he could not continue as he is if he belongs to Jesus. He could not maintain the same priorities, make the same decisions, live the same way if he belonged to Jesus. He would need to change. He would need to give up things. And he's not prepared to change, not prepared to give up things. He still wants the property and the reputation and the pleasure and the freedom to set his own boundaries and his own rules. And so he will not come to Jesus. I've heard many stories like Joe's. I'm sure many of you have heard them too. Had the frustration of seeking to share the gospel yet one more time with somebody like that. Jesus is attractive. The promises he's made are attractive too and on balance they're convinced that they're true and he is who he says he is but the price is too high, the cost is too much. Even though forgiveness is freely offered and grace is a generosity undeserved, the consequences of accepting them are too far-reaching and I would need to change, so I will not come. You might remember that uh, when we were back in Matthew 5, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, however many years ago that was now, I quoted the famous words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer knew that discipleship, true discipleship, is costly. It's not something that simply enhances a lifestyle and a worldview that pretty much remains intact. It's not an add-on or a supplement. It's far more radical than that. It strips everything back in one way or another. 
And Bonhoeffer knew that this was something too easily forgotten in the Christian churches, where we quickly become too comfortable all over again and where the decisions we make are too convenient. We need to be kept, we need to keep being called back, don't we? In the starkest way possible, so that the illusion we have embraced of life in the world thinly veneered with Christian respectability might be shown for what it is. So, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's why this morning too, we need the starkness and sharpness of the words of Jesus on discipleship and its cost, since it is highly likely that we too have forgotten how truly radical discipleship is. Would you turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 18. It's worth noticing uh, where Matthew locates the two brief encounters in this paragraph of his Gospel. They're placed right after the three healing miracles we looked at two weeks ago. The healing of the leper, the the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, all leading into the multiple healings of verse 16. When evening came, they brought to him many of the demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all those who were sick. These healings were displays of power, demonstrations of authority. They drew crowds. It was a time of victory and triumph, leprosy, paralysis, fever, demon possession, all gone with just a word from Jesus. No doubt this was a moment when Jesus looked especially attractive. He had a power and authority that surpassed anything that anyone had seen before. Nothing stood in the way of his triumph and his compassion. He was the man you wanted to be associated with if you had any brains at all. Just look at the crowds. In the triumphant haze of Jesus' healing ministry, following Jesus just made sense. Of course it did. And that's why on one level, what happens next is not really surprising at all. Two men come to Jesus, two different men with different approaches, and they both want to follow him, or so they say. But when we look a little closer, we discover a number of things about each of them that alert us that there is more going on. And in that more, you and I are addressed this morning. Verse 18. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave instructions to go over to the other side. And a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the heavens have nests, but the Son of Man does not have a place to rest his head. Another, one of his disciples, said to him, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Two men, let's look at each of them a little more closely because they are different and Jesus treats them differently. The first man is a scribe, an educated man, a student of the scriptures. In the Gospels, the scribes are not usually interested in hearing or following Jesus, but rather in opposing him. So already that's a bit of a shock. 
a Jewish academic approaches Jesus and announces he will follow him. And that's the second slightly out of the ordinary thing. You see, this man doesn't ask Jesus whether he may follow him. He doesn't seek permission to follow him. Others will do that, but not this man. He simply announces that he will follow Jesus and he will follow him wherever he might go. I don't think that we're meant to miss a certain note of self-confidence, even a slight hint of superiority in uh, this man, this scribe. One writer goes so far as to say it was as if this man thought, Jesus, this is your lucky day. I'm coming with you. At last you've got a man with brains on your side. Well, perhaps it's reading just a little bit too much into uh, what was going on. But he is clearly an enthusiast. And there is a sense in which he thinks he's up to it. doesn't matter where this path leads, I'm in. He assumes that he's able to follow Jesus wherever he goes. What made him assume that? What made him assume that? He's rushed in become clear in a moment that he's not really thought through what he's saying. He's eager, he's enthusiastic, but in the end his enthusiasm is superficial. And Jesus exposes that in the words which he says to him. Foxes have holes and the birds of the heaven have nests, but the Son of Man does not have a place to rest his head. They are astonishing words for a number of reasons. This is the first time the title Son of Man is used by Jesus in this Gospel. It will in time become the standard way of referring to himself. It echoes, as I know you know, Daniel 7 and the one like a Son of Man who executes the purposes of God, the great judge who judges all humankind. There is a glory associated with the title Son of Man that is clear when you read Daniel 7. He is an imposing, powerful, glorious figure. And that's where the real shock comes. Yes, he is the son of man. Yes, sickness, disease and death obey his command. Even the demons are subject to him and are expelled with just a word. He is mind-bogglingly powerful. And yet he, the son of man, does not have a place to rest his head. You see, following him is not going to be a matter of one adoring crowd after another. It's not going to be five-star hotels, villas by the sea, business class travel, the life of a celebrity or even the friend of a celebrity. In the heavenly vision of Daniel 7, the Son of Man is unambiguously powerful and majestic. But on earth he is amongst the homeless. And he has no place to rest his head, to bow his head. Actually, in time, he will have a place to bow his head. Almost the exact words that Matthew uses here are used later by John to describe the last action of Jesus on the cross. He said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's where wherever you go, leads, you see. Not bigger and bigger crowds, more and more respectability, not comfort, 
but the cross. It will mean rejection and shame and sacrifice and no secure place in the world. Are you up for that? Because that's where Jesus went. Jesus' words to this man, swept along by the moment, dazzled by ministry success, asked him whether he knows what it really means to follow Jesus. Does he really know what following Jesus will mean over the long haul? When the initial excitement dies down and the reality of the world's hostility to its saviour has to be looked squarely in the eye. Not when the crowds are around and swelling every day, but when there's little excitement, little sign of any interest at all. When it's hard going following Jesus. Wherever you go, Really? Did you really mean that? It would be too easy, wouldn't it, uh, to direct attention at this point to, to, to those that you know and those that I know who've been unprepared for the reality of following Jesus. Those who are not ready for what it really means to love and serve the rejected saviour of the world. Those who didn't count the cost, were eager and enthusiastic, who rushed in, made all sorts of promises too soon and without much thought. I can think of many people like that, can't you? And when it gets rough or hard or the results aren't readily available, they leave off and stop following Jesus. If you've seen that in a friend or a loved one or someone who might even have led you to Christ, it's heartbreaking. But I want to ask you about you. Are you ready for a discipleship that is not comfortable, that involves pressure, pressure from outside of you, but pressure from inside of you as well, your own disappointments and failure. Following Jesus means following him all the way and the way he went led eventually to the cross. That's wherever you go. Are you ready to bear what it really means to be a disciple? Or will it catch you by surprise when everything does not go your way? Do you realise that ultimately you cannot be a disciple and comfortable? Well, the second man who approaches Jesus is already one of his disciples. At least that's how he's presented to us in verse 21. He's very different from the scribe who decided to become a disciple and announces it to Jesus if the scribe rushes headlong, unthinking and buoyed up by a superficial enthusiasm, this second man takes a long, hard think. And as he does, he remembers the other calls on his time and his energy and his loyalty. Did you notice the surprise in verse 21? It's not so much that he asked to bury his father. That was a special duty that every Jewish son had to his father. Whether or not his father had just died, was ill and might die at any moment or was just getting elderly, we don't know precisely the situation of this man and his father. On face value, his request seems quite reasonable. After all, we see nothing wrong with bereavement leave, do we? And it's not even, the surprise is not even, that he asks this after the great miracles where Jesus had demonstrated so decisively his power over sickness, disease and death. 
Why not talk to Jesus about his father, just as the centurion talked to Jesus about his servant? He's been around the man who banishes with a word the seemingly natural conditions that oppress us. And yet he's talking about just surrendering to the obligations surrounding death. No, the real surprise, the real punch, comes in one little word in verse 21. It's the word first. Let me first go and bury my father. Yes, I'll come and follow you too. Did he overhear the words of the scribe and want to join in? I want to be with you too, but I've got things to do first. They're important things. You recognise that, don't you, Jesus? It's a sacred responsibility. I've got to do this first. Then I'll come. Then I'll follow. And so he postpones his discipleship. How long he is talking about postponing is, is not the issue, really. It's that other things are pressing in and they have the priority as far as this man is concerned. Something else has the first consideration. And what is just as surprising is that this man is already, as I said, one of Jesus' disciples. How long that's been true, I don't know. Uh, From the beginning, from the baptism since the last batch of healings, when he'd heard the Sermon on the Mount, however long he is a disciple, and yet he is a cautious hesitant disciple who lets other commitments take precedence in his life. For you see, men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood this very well. Discipleship is not just a one-off decision. It's a decision that needs to keep being made. I will follow and I will keep following. There are, of course, people you might immediately think of uh, who always have a reason for putting off the moment of decision, the decision to follow Jesus. Not yet, I've got to do this. Let me get these things done. Let me get in place the things I need to get in place and then I'll follow him. I've talked to people like that. I've sought to evangelise people like that, haven't you? But this man was already a disciple. Is it possible to be a disciple and to keep saying, first to give other things, other commitments, a priority that means when the moment comes, it will be, I can't quite do that at this moment. Now, there's, there's no real sense in this passage that Jesus rebukes the man. Strangely, that had not been the case with the scribe either. Jesus, it appears, wanted both of them to follow him. Jesus says what he says to this man because he wants him to follow him. He wants him to see clearly and decide wisely. The stark and harsh words Jesus said to this man were words of love in the end, exposing what he should have known and the obstacle that stands in his way. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Such a harsh assessment of the choice facing this man, isn't it? There may be a whole load of commitments that demand your attention, but they are the dead burying their own dead. The world is a wonderful place. It was created good and it's still good. 
There is so much of it that we can celebrate and enjoy. Relationships in this world can be rich and rewarding and precious, but the banner that Jesus brazenly paints over all of it is this, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Faced with the reality of Jesus' grace and gospel mission, other priorities are seen in this different light. You, Jesus is saying to this man, you have before you the choice of following me or remaining entangled in choices of a dying world. The spiritually dead will get on with their business one way or the other, but I'm calling you to follow me. If the first man needed to hear that discipleship, true discipleship, is not comfortable, this man needed to learn that discipleship, true discipleship, is not convenient. It cuts across other obligations, even the right and good and precious obligations that we have. And so I want to know, are you ready for discipleship that's not convenient? A discipleship that interrupts the pattern of life that you've imagined for yourself. A discipleship that says, no, right now, leave and follow me. It is intriguing, isn't it, that such strong words should be said straight after the wonderful mercy of those three healing miracles and that night of deliverance. As Matthew has put his gospel together, he's moved us so very smoothly from the enthusiasm and power and victory of the miracles, that day of great and big things, to the stark everyday reality of what it means to follow the one who does those miracles. Following him will not be comfortable. How could it be, given where he's heading? Following him will not be convenient. How could it be when his coming interrupts the morbid patterns of life in a broken world? And the question is such an urgent one. Friends, are you ready for that kind of discipleship? I know that some of you have had a taste of the discomfort and the inconvenience of following Jesus, the despised Messiah. I don't mean the privilege of setting aside a high-paying, high-pressure job in order to come to college and train for ministry. That's really a privilege, isn't it? I mean the real personal and relational cost of following Jesus when it is the harder option and when it disrupts life as it was so dramatically. For you who've had that taste, and I know some of you have, Remember the one you're following. Look at the road he was prepared to walk for you. Yet the reason these encounters are recorded for us is because it is so easy for so many of us to settle for the illusion of discipleship that is comfortable and convenient. And we need to be reminded that that is not what Jesus promises. It is not what he is calling us to. In these two brief encounters, Jesus tells us the nature of the discipleship that he's seeking. It is a discipleship that takes its character from the life and mission of the one we follow. 
And so it's not sheer enthusiasm that has no sense of the cost, nor the cautious hesitation because there are other things that must be done first. Are you ready for the real thing? And it is worth it. It is worth it. Because the one who said these things to these two men is the one whose compassion was magnificently on display in the healing of the leper and the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law. He's the one who, as we'll see next time, calms the storm and brings judgment on all that stands against us. He is the Son of Man to whom was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. On earth he might not have had a place to lay his head except a hard wooden cross. Yet his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, enable us to follow. Enable us really to follow the Son you sent so that we might be saved. And we ask it in his name. Amen.